I want to bring you first greetings from Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, my home church. Um, we, they prayed for you, this church, by name, prayed for this meeting by name about, I don't know, eight hours ago or so. And uh, so, and we'll be praying for you again next week. Uh, we're grateful for our partnership and, uh, and a number of our elders know uh, not only Ron and Bill, but also Tim. And so they are... Uh, they're very grateful for the relationship that we have in, in Sovereign Grace. I, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Um, I, I remember hearing about the Pasadena Church when I first came to Sovereign Grace. When Sovereign Grace was not Sovereign Grace, Sovereign Grace was called PDI. Um, and it, it, this was, I don't want to give away, I don't know, this was like 30 years ago or something. I don't want to do the math. And to now to finally be here and to see this church that has has been so faithful for so many years. Uh, you may not think of yourselves this way. Uh, I bet you don't think of yourselves this way because I, I get to go to a lot of churches and churches, you know, people come and they love each other and they love Christ, but they're not they're just thinking about getting through the day so, so often. But I mean, you you represent something special, uh, a faithful, stalwart church that's seen it all. Um, if you were to talk to your pastors and draw them out on the history, this church has walked through many things, many transitions, persevered through many changes, that, and steadfastly held to Christ, and steadfastly held forth Christ to your city. So I, I just feel this. This sounds. Please don't think this uh, sounds like hype. It's not hype. I just feel like I'm am among greatness because, you know, in the world's eyes, gatherings, churches, they don't measure up. But in God's eyes, these are the. You are people for whom Christ died. You are a light in this city, and you have persevered and been faithful. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, it really is an honor to be here. It's particularly a joy to see Tim and Becca Owens and their family. Um, as you know, Tim uh, was in the Pastors College this past year. I have the privilege of leading the Pastors College. Uh, Tim and Becca didn't just, I have a secret to tell you, they didn't just attend the Pastors College. Um, you might be thinking, what did they do? Um, they made an impact on the Pastors College. Uh, after about a month of us being into the program and getting to know Tim and Becca, I started to think, you know, I should be, instead of them paying tuition, I should be paying them uh, to be part of the Pastors College. And uh, yeah, I know Tim's going to shake his head, um, which is typical for him. But their, and this goes for both Tim and Becca, uh, their humility, their eagerness, their wisdom, their maturity, I mean, it set a pace for the whole class. I don't know what that class would have been like without Tim and Becca and without their delightful family. We hated to say goodbye to them. We really did. But we were excited that they were coming back here. And to hear them talk about you and the church that they had been a part of, but that they were returning to, that was a joy to be able to say, right, that's, that's where you should be. Um, so thank you for receiving them back. I didn't know he had special talents as like a media personality. Um, 
but I never saw that, Tim, but I saw a lot of gifts, so I didn't see that one. But uh, so it, it's, just, it's just pure joy to be here. Thank you for your example locally. Thank you for your partnership in Sovereign Grace broadly. And I just want to say, I just loved hearing, I know there's a seminar tomorrow night, I'm, I'm going to be part of that, but also the celebration conference. One of the things, if you've been around Sovereign Grace a long time, you might remember the celebration conferences. And those, uh, when we grew and when we expanded and it just got to be unwieldy to have those uh, the way we used to. But there was nothing that galvanized us like those churches. There was nothing that for the person sitting in a Sovereign Grace church to, to open their eyes and see, I really am part of something. God has, God has joined us to something that's far more significant um, not more significant than your local church, but far more significant than I realize. Uh, there are people serving Christ, believing what we do, living life the way we do, singing the songs we do. There is something peculiarly strengthening about that. So they, no one asked me to say this, but I just want to say I would, you can, I would encourage you to go to that. You can come back a different church. You really can. So that's a little plug there. Anyway, thank you for having me. It's, it's such a joy. Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, um, or turn to your iPhone, if, you, if you've got it on, on your phone, to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40. Isaiah, chapter 40. In his book, Zeal Without Burnout, author and pastor Christopher Ash recounts this story it's a story about a pastor, and he calls it a story from the edge. Listen to this story. He, this pastor, stared vacantly out of the window. So much to do, so little energy. His open Bible glowered, chiding his failure to read, work, wrestle, write. His inbox and entry ticked up and up each task whispering, so much to do, so many people, such deep needs, so little time, so little energy. Prayer burden stacked up day after day after day. After these years of effort and pressure, he had nothing left. No resources, no emotional reserves, no intellectual energy, nothing. And so he stared with empty eyes. How had it come to this? Could he have done things differently? Might it have been avoided? Is there even now a way out? I wonder this morning if you can relate at all to this man's experience. Maybe not his circumstances or even the degree of his experience. And of course, we can all feel, can't we, in a busy world, a busy life, you live in a busy city, we can all feel overwhelmed. But what struck me is his growing sense of futility and hopelessness. That last line, even, is, is there even now a way out? And I don't know you as a church, but perhaps your own circumstances have left you with a similar longing or, or, or waiting for something that 
seems like it, it'll never come. Looking for something, something that will provide respite or relief or resolution to a, to a challenging situation that's locked up. There seems to be, there seems to be no way out. You may, and I'm sure this is the case uh, in this church, you, you, you're probably looking to God in this situation, praying and hoping, but the delay has seemed long, and your hope has begun to fade, and your strength of soul has begun to wane, and you have become weary, not just tired. Tiredness comes every day, and I know this even more the older I get, but God remedies tiredness with sleep. Sleep is a gift from God to basically remind us that we are not God. We lie down, God keeps working. We lie down, we trust Him. We lie down, we run out of energy, He does not. Sleep is a gift, but sleep does not resolve weariness nor does a vacation, nor does leisure, nor does social media. Social media will exacerbate it. Uh, Nor does a new iPhone that came out this week. This one didn't, but a new one did. Um, The latest technology. You know, all these things hold forth hope. They will not relieve weariness. It's it's much more persistent, often lingering for for days or weeks or, or years. Here's what I mean when I speak of weariness as this man experienced it. This is the way I would define it. It, I'm talking about a persistent fatigue of the soul that has lost sight of a better future. A persistent fatigue in your soul that that has, has stopped hoping, stopped believing, has lost sight of a better future. And that kind of weariness produces more than yawns or tired muscles. It generates questions. It softens convictions. It weakens resolve. Now, the text we're going to look at this morning speaks to just that kind of weariness. Now, if you don't know the book of Isaiah, it's, it's a big book, but when we come to the chapter we're going to look at, Isaiah chapter 40, we come to an entirely new section of the book. Let me give you a quick preview of what has happened. Isaiah 39, the previous chapter, ends with a message of disaster, okay? Uh, after King Hezekiah's reign, for some of you that's an ancient name, but he was one of the great kings of Israel. After his reign, about 700 years before Jesus, that's where we are on the map, Despite deliverance from Assyria, maybe you remember that, that's Isaiah 37, God wipes out 185,000 Assyrians to deliver the nation. Despite, after that, despite moments of revival, despite moments of faith, Judah is going to follow their cousins, the northern kingdom, into rebellion and idolatry and unbelief. And around 100 years later, it too would be destroyed, sent into exile by the conquering Babylonians. But then comes Isaiah 40, and it's like, it's like Isaiah wakes up from a dream to a vision of future mercies. So that's what's happening in the text we're going to read. Isaiah is projecting out into the future after Jerusalem is destroyed, after the people are languishing in exile in Babylon, 
And he mercifully counsels these people with advice, with perspective. They will desperately need when that time comes. So that's, that's the context, okay? It's, he is addressing here a dislocated people. He's addressing a devastated people. He's addressing a guilty people. And after years in exile, he's addressing a weary people, weary of sin, weary of judgment, weary of waiting. And maybe, just maybe, you are as well. And if you are, and if you're not now, you probably will be in the future, I'd like us to listen in to what Isaiah has to say to such people. Because this is God's inspired word. It's what he has to say to us as well. So let's look together at Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to begin in verse 27. Here is God's trustworthy word to weary people like me sometimes and perhaps like you. Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Pray with me, if you would. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word through which you come to us. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for addressing us in our need in our longings, Lord, even in our weariness. I I pray that today, Lord, this church would not just hear a man speak, that we would hear you speak and that you would draw near to us and open our eyes and open our hearts to all that you would do for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, to to get our arms around Isaiah's message, I want to explore this text under three headings, okay? Isaiah really gives us, he's pastoring us here, okay? And as he pastors us, he gives us three pictures to help diagnose our hearts and deliver us counsel that we need in weariness. So, there's going to be three pictures here, all right? So, number one, the first part of his counsel, the first picture, and if you're taking notes, this would be point number one, the despondent heart, the despondent heart. Look again at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? And so, like like a wise pastor, Isaiah doesn't just start talking, he asks a question. And he asks a question that's designed to to break up the heart of these exiles. Two attitudes have entered their soul and are poisoning their perspective. You see the first in verse 27. My way is hidden from the Lord. That's what they're thinking. 
Now, so Isaiah, again, he's looking out into the future. He's anticipating this acute isolation these exiles will feel. Hundreds, think about it, hundreds of miles from home, surrounded by pagan peoples, cut off from the land of promise, the very land God had given them as, as a sign that they are His people, where they would live out their relationship with God. It, it, it brought into question whether they are even God's people or not. So, so this is far worse than like a bad circumstance. This is worse. This is not just a national emergency. This is a theological catastrophe. Their whole relationship with God, their very identity as the people of God called into question. The holy city, Jerusalem, in flames. The temple of God, the very dwelling place of God on earth in ruins. And so they think, does God even even see anymore? That's not just an emotional statement. That's a theological statement. Strikes at the very nature of God. God is unaware of me. He's he's either too great to notice or he's moved on. Other things to do, other people to bless perhaps. Perhaps you found yourself thinking, so so where's God when when I need him? And the weary heart rarely stays stagnant. The spiral goes downward. Look at the second attitude in 27b. My right is disregarded by my God. My my right, my cause, what I I care about, what what I'm asking for, it's disregarded, dismissed out of hand. And the verb tense there is a continuous one. It's as if he's saying, God keeps doing this. God keeps ignoring me. I I pray and he doesn't answer. I'm I'm in need. He doesn't lift a finger to help me. I I seek his face and I, I get the cold shoulder. You see what's happening. Now it's not just God can't see. It's God doesn't care. That's where weariness can take us. It can lead our hearts into despondency, even despair. It it can poison our hearts with those haunting questions. Does God know? Does He care? We could reframe those theologically. Is God sovereign? Is God good? And, you know, we are here. We love, love the Lord. We're singing songs. We're lifting up our hearts to Jesus but we're not immune to those kinds of questions. The, I think back to my own history, the, the exhilaration of our conversion or a favorable season of blessing fades into a season of perseverance. Disappointments, you have any of those? They disorient us. Um, or suffering persists seems unending. Might might be a career path that looked good, but it was frustrated, hits a wall, and now the future seems uncertain. Not sure what this is going to look like. Long-standing desires, good desires, godly desires are are unfulfilled. And and years of prayer seem unanswered. I've got 
a few prayers that I pray every single day, and I've been praying them for years, and I'm still praying. Maybe it's really close to home, marital strife, perhaps, or, or, or disappointment. It seems unresolvable, and, it, and it's there every morning. Um, might be this person here, a, a diligent parent, diligent parents who, who love their kids and point their kids to Christ, and, but their child seems captured by the world, cold to the gospel. Maybe cold to you and your, your, your love. All of us in some way are touched or will be touched by an illness that seems to drain your life or someone you love. Or threaten your life or someone you love. So I'm a guest, but I wonder. I wonder if he came here this, this afternoon feeling hidden, overlooked by God. Maybe that isolation has morphed into accusation. Lord, don't, don't you care? That was one of the most unfair things ever said to Jesus Christ on the Sea of Galilee when his disciples said, Lord, don't you care? That's the last thing they should have said. But we can say that ourselves, can't we? Perceptively, imperceptibly, and slowly, maybe you've begun to suspect God is not really for me. You may not share that in your small group, but maybe you felt that before. It, you know what the most immediate most direct application of this text, it's for those who are paralyzed by guilt. I mean, that's what these exiles were facing. They deserved this judgment. They, they lived under a sense of God's rejection. Maybe that's you. Maybe you live primarily, not primarily aware of God's forgiveness, not of Christ's sin-bearing sacrifice on your behalf, but primarily aware of your sin or your failure. So, so many, oh my, as a pastor, I see it all the time. So many godly Christians are hounded with this thought. I, I should be so much further along by now. You ever thought that? How God must be just so disgusted with me, disappointed with me. Yeah, he saved me, but he's tolerating me. Or maybe there's real sin. That you've confessed and repented and confessed and repented and confessed and repented. And so you start wondering, has God just tuned me out? Or, yeah, God forgives, but not this sin. <laughs> or maybe, yeah, I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. But God's set me aside because of what I've done, because of what I've failed to do. He's just put me to the side. I'm going to heaven, but I'm not sure there's much of a future for me and God. This is quite a mirror Isaiah holds up to us this morning. So let me just ask you, do you, 
you recognize yourself here. If you do, when you do, this text is designed for you. So that's the first picture, okay? The despondent heart. That lays out the problem. Picture number two begins to address the problem. And so let's look at picture number two, the the majestic God. The majestic God. Look with me at verse 28 again. Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So Isaiah begins his counsel with a few questions of his own, and it's not real gentle. (laughs) And it's so insightful how he proceeds. Did you notice that? Have you not heard, he said. So what what they are doing is interpreting life through what they've seen. They they are interpreting their lives through the lens of circumstances and appearances and their subjective interpretation of those circumstances. Isaiah calls them away from what they've seen to what they've heard. In other words, to what they know by revelation. And the particular thing they need to remember what they have known, what they have heard, is just who their God is. Let me tell you, everything that matters in life hangs on who God is. Everything. And Isaiah has actually been describing God throughout chapter 40. And so, in our text, he is summing up and applying his argument. That's why he begins verse 27 the way he does. Why do you say, O Jacob? He's incredulous. How can you say such things about God? And so he reminds them, don't you know? Haven't you heard? Heard what? Verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Now, in the original, there's actually three names for God, one after another. It's literally, let me translate it for you literally. The God of eternity, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not think. So Isaiah piles up three names of God to rivet Israel's attention on God's transcendence. He he, he might as well be saying, are you kidding me? This is God we're talking about. Well, what kind of God? Well, first, let's look at him. First, he is the everlasting God. Literally, the, the God of eternity. So right out of the gate, he's saying... God's not like you, Judah. He bears no resemblance to you, Judah. He he is the God of eternity. He had no beginning. He will have no end. He does not exist in a temporal mode. He is not bound by the limitations and ravages and deadlines and pressures of time like you and like me. Time, Time has no effect on him. Time is not running out on him. He lives in an eternal now, and not by your little bitty timetable. Think of, and he's drawing from other other texts. Think of what the Bible says about this. To God, a thousand years are like yesterday, Psalm 90 verse 4. A thousand years are like yesterday. Think about that. He doesn't forget history. He doesn't forget. All of history is like so many windows still open on his laptop. It's just there. And then 
Peter, 2 Peter 3, says this, a day is as a thousand years. So a single day, your day, your trial, always present in his consciousness. You think he's forgotten you? He can't forget you. You think he's moved on? He can't. Past trials, excruciating pain that that you've already forgotten. He's not forgotten. He's still thinking about those trials that you've forgotten. He's not only thinking about it, he's still working through it. He's still weaving beauty out of it. So, if you're frantic or harried this morning, take a deep breath. God's not. If, if you're anxious or fearful this morning, He's not. If you're jaded or disillusioned because of broken circumstances, He's not. Do you know why? Because He's not finished yet. He's not finished yet. He's the God of eternity. Second name is the Lord. Now, if you've got your Bible, you'll see that word Lord is in all caps, L-O-R-D. Perhaps you've, you know this, that, but that's the personal name of God behind that translation, specifically reserved for the people He has chosen. This is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush to remind Israel of God's commitment to them. So, God is not just eternal, He's personal. He's not just any God or the God or the God of someone's imagination. He's your God. He's the God who loved you. He's the God who claimed you. He's the God who gave himself to you. He's the God who bound you to himself. That's who we're talking about. And thirdly, verse 28, he's the creator. The creator of the ends of the earth. Throughout this chapter, Isaiah has, has been addressing the question, can God really deliver Israel or Judah? Can He really deliver? Or is He just a local God? Is He a tribal God? He's good in this little area, but He can't handle stuff over here. He's good against the Assyrians, but He won't be able to handle the Babylonians. And so, what does Isaiah do? He takes Judah back to square one, actually takes him back to Genesis 1, and says, he is the creator of the ends of the earth, every square inch of earth, even the pagan dirt of Babylon, where you think God can't see. So, the ground you walk on, the space you occupy, the time you exist in, life, circumstances, hospital rooms. Lonely apartments, hostile workplaces. He's there. He made it all. He rules it all. You see the picture. Three things. God is transcendent. God is personal. And God is powerful. You got it? Which is why... Verse 28b, the conclusion, he doesn't faint or grow weary. He never lacks the power to accomplish his plans. He, he, he's not like some you know, basketball team that you know, moves the ball all over and is fast and makes beautiful passes, but never, never gets the ball in the hoop. You know, they, they, they set 
passing records, but, but they, never, they never win a game. That, that's, that's not God. Situations never get out of His control. They never need revisiting. They never need revising. They never need re-engineering. So, however chaotic or confusing your life seems, God hasn't changed. He hasn't checked out. He, he hasn't lost control of your life or your family or your small group, or your church. We sang from Hebrews 1 this morning, uh, or the, the call to worship, it re- Hebrews 1-3 remains in force. Jesus is right now upholding the entire universe and your life and your family by the word of His power. He's upholding it. He's keeping you in existence right now. And He has your well-being in that mighty hand. He's got, whatever you're thinking of, circumstance, He's got this. He's got you. So that little box that we can put God in, Isaiah just, he just explodes it. And I love what he does next. His great description of God, he concludes it in verse 28 with a final humbling brushstroke. He doesn't faint or grow weary, and then we read, his understanding is unsearchable. Literally, there is no searching out his understanding. Search all you want. You'll never grasp the depths of God's knowledge, of his wisdom, or his ways. Now, so often that's my biggest problem, because I think I can't. I so often think I know what God is up to. I can search out His understanding, or I demand that I should. That His actions conform to my expectations. That God owes me an explanation for how things are going. Now, we know some things, right? Scripture gives us some parameters. God is convicting me of this sin If you feel, yes, wonderful, I have no doubt. Uh, God is teaching me patience with my children, no doubt. God is giving me boldness to to share Christ with my, my roommates, absolutely. But He's also doing 10,000 other things that you are totally oblivious to. And... Not only that, he's perfectly weaving those 10,000 things into the 10,000 things that he's doing in other people, in other families, in other cities, in other nations, and I imagine distant galaxies, all into a perfect tapestry of wisdom and righteousness and grace, all to the praise of his glory. We're meant to just go, whoa. (laughs) Okay. And so, to the weary heart, Isaiah is essentially saying... Don't let your circumstances redefine who God is. Just the opposite. Let this picture of God redefine your circumstances. Whatever your circumstances suggest, whatever your feelings scream, there is nothing in our lives that is beyond His compassion or His power. Which leads us to the third picture in this text. We've seen the despondent heart, that's the problem, the majestic God, the solution begins to suggest itself, and now, number three, the empowered life. The empowered 
life. Uh, A a transition actually begins to happen in verse 29. We've, We've seen who God is, and now we learn what He does. Okay? So look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, He increases strength. These not to cause your eyes to roll over in the back of your head on 4.30 on a Sunday afternoon. But let me tell you this, the, the verb forms show that these aren't just occasional acts that God does. They are part of who He is. So God is not only eternal and omnipotent and omnipresent, He's also a giver. <laughs> he does not faint, but He loves to give power to those who do. It's it's who He is. He's so generous in His compassion that He's just looking for a weak and weary person that He can infuse with power. I think of 2 Chronicles 69, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that He might find the one whose heart is completely is, that He might fully support Him. God's on a search. He's looking. He's looking for weak and weary people who will look to Him, and He loves giving power, persevering power to such people. He, he's not like, you, you know, marathons, he's not like those people at the watering stations. You know, you're kind of running. If you can just make it to the table, there'll be a glass of water, and, and you probably will, like, knock it off. I've even seen some of those people throw waters at people, and, you know, people drop it, and they don't get any water. But, you know, God's not like that. If you can just make it to the table, I'll give you some strength. No, He's in the race with us. He's like, get a giant IV of His, you know, attaching His power to our body so that we can be sustained in our race with Him. He's eager to supply you with strength every step, every moment. And it cannot be otherwise because of who we are. That's what Isaiah goes to next. He's talked about God. Now he looks at us and he tells us who we are in verse 30. Check it out. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Note the stark contrast. Did you see that verse 28? God does not faint or grow weary. Verse 30, youths shall faint and be weary. Exact same verbs in the original. We're meant to hear that echo. And then it intensifies. Young men shall fall exalted. Young men, choice men, man at his strongest, man at his most vigorous, man at his most impressive and capable, they fall exhausted. I might translate that, they all together collapse. You see the contrast? Left to ourselves, we always fail. God cannot fail. But there's more than a contrast here. There is a secret here. It's a secret to understanding ourselves, and it will it will cover a multitude of foolish thoughts. You want to know the secret? Here it is. We are creatures designed to be dependent on a creator. It's it's who we are. 
Self-sufficiency, pulling ourselves up by our bootstrap, it's not just a sin, it's a violation of our very design. God created us, wired us to live one and only one way, entrusting dependence upon Him. That's our DNA. You are designed to need a power outside of yourself. And if you deny that and try to live life differently, well, you're just, you're just stupid. <laughs> I'm stupid because I, I do it all the time. So how do we get it? So how do we in our need qualify for God's all-sufficient power? We, we've got a choice. There's only two ways to live. We, we either you know, depend on our own resources and we collapse and fail, or we thrive by God's resources. Hello? <laughs> Which do you want? I know what I want. But how do we get it? Verse 31 supplies the all-important answer. This is the crux of the text. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here is the divine design for joining God's all-sufficient power to my all-encompassing need. It's for those who wait for the Lord. That's one of my favorite verbs in the Old Testament. Uh, There's a number of words in Hebrew for waiting. Uh, This is a special one. It's not just any kind of waiting. It doesn't mean, you know, like waiting at the bus stop. Uh, It it is not just killing time. And it's certainly not impatient waiting, impatiently enduring. It always means to wait expectantly, to wait confidently, to rest trustingly. We're so sure that God is at work that we're happy to wait because we know He's doing good and we know we're going to see it. It may not look exactly like we think, but we know He's doing it and it's going to happen and we're going to see it. Here's how we can define waiting upon the Lord. This is how I would define it. Those who wait on the Lord live life with a confident expectation of His action on their behalf. Does that make sense? I'll say it again. Those who wait on the Lord live with a confident expectation of God's action on their behalf. To put it in physical terms, you're not slouched back in a chair, drumming your fingers or tapping your foot impatiently. No, nor are you scrambling around trying to outmaneuver your circumstances, making sure every, I'm I'm just, I'm covering this, I'm covering that. Do you know that feeling? No, you're on your tiptoes. You're watching, you're waiting, you're hoping, you're trusting. God, God is at work, He's going to act. I know it, He's going to act for me. That's the physical translation, if you will, of the word. That's what we're we're looking for Him to act. Now, raise a question for me. Maybe you thought it. Why waiting? Why is waiting on God the mechanism by which He gives us His strength? It's actually simple. When when we wait on God, we're doing what we were created to do, to live in trusting dependence upon our Creator. And when we wait on God, we glorify Him. 
by confessing our utter dependence upon Him and His all-sufficiency to be all that we need. When we, when we wait on God, we're simply letting God be God. We refuse to, to run ahead of Him to get what we want. We, we refuse the impulse to deliver ourselves. We, we release our demands and we embrace God's provision. And here's what I found. Like few other things, waiting will expose just what it is you're living for or trusting in. The harder it is to wait for something, the more likely that my hope is in that something. Does that make sense? But when I wait on the Lord, submitting to His will, trusting in His timing, resting in His faithfulness, we're making a loud statement. We're saying, Lord, what I really want is not an answer. What I really want is not a change in circumstances. What I really want is you. Your will for my life. Your provision for my needs. Your glory in my circumstances. Lord, I, I, want, I want you. And that's... That's really what waiting on the Lord is about. Waiting is not God's way to deprive us. Waiting is God's way to change us. Look at verse 31 again. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. You see that word renew there? It actually means to change. Like you change clothes or to exchange. So those who wait on the Lord don't, don't muster up their own resources. They make a trade. They, they relinquish their weakness for God's strength. They relinquish their inability for God's all-encompassing ability. And that's really the message of this text. That's really God's word to you in your weariness. We could put it this way. Overcoming power comes to those who confidently rest in God's promises. It's that simple. Overcoming power comes to those who confidently rest in God's promises. So if you're weary this morning, this is an invitation to you. It's God's invitation to you. To, to weary people, to, to frustrated people, to hopeless people. This, this text is revolutionary. It offers a whole new way of living, not like everyone around us lives, not by appearances, not by feelings, not by explanations, but living by promises. Whatever, whatever's in your soul this, this afternoon, I keep saying this morning, uh, whatever's Whatever you're facing this afternoon, you're not meant to face it alone. You're not created to face it alone. Here's the promise. Those who wait for the Lord shall exchange their weakness for God's strength. 
And there is that strength. There is a divinely calculated grace for you. Did you see that in verse 31? God's God's strength comes in different forms. Sometimes God provides miraculous provision. They will mount up with wings like eagles. Sometimes situations are so impossible that you need to do the impossible. You need wings to soar. And if that's what you're facing, God will give you wings to soar. Sometimes we need persevering grace in the headwinds of trials and suffering to keep running. If that's what you need, that's what He gives. They shall run and not be weary. Sometimes, all of the the time, all of us need in the grind of daily life, we need steady, sustaining grace to walk. They shall walk and not faint. They shall walk. They shall keep sowing seeds. They shall keep praying. They shall keep loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. They shall keep holding forth Christ to their neighbors. They shall continue. They shall walk and be faithful. And that shows us something, doesn't it? I love that last line because it tells me this. Waiting on the Lord is not simply for trials or desperate circumstances. It's not something for young Christians that you will mature out of. Waiting on the Lord is the very substance of the Christian life. Every day investing all of our hope in God. Every day submitting to His wisdom. Every day trusting in His timing. Every day watching, looking, expecting Him to act for us in mercy. Here's here's my go-to way of thinking about this. Facing every day with glad expectations of God. If you're a golfer, that's my swing thought. Every day. I want to face this day with glad expectations of God. And I don't feel that way when I wake up. But I'm, I'm not hitting my day until I've gotten there. Through His Word, through prayer, I'm going to get there so that I can walk out my door, face my wife, love my kids, serve my church with glad expectations of God. What a way to live. Let me say this. Isaiah makes some extravagant promises here, but he's yet to answer the most penetrating question. He's yet to answer the most serious question. How can God do all this stuff that Jeff is just yelling about? How how can He do all of this stuff in light of our sin? In light of who we are, how can God really be for us? And if Isaiah were here this morning, you know what he would say? Keep reading. Keep reading, keep turning the pages, and in about 12 chapters, I'm going to answer that question. Because in chapters 52 and 53, Isaiah is going to describe God's God's greatest act of mercy. Far greater than national deliverance from Egypt, far greater than deliverance from exile in Babylon. This act of mercy involved sending another king, not like Hezekiah. One that would look very different from all the other kings. 
He would come not looking powerful. God is powerful, right? This, this, this guy is going to come and he's not going to look powerful. He's not going to strut around telling everyone how important he is. He's not going to be celebrated by men, which we spend our lives celebrating people in our culture. Now, he's going to be despised by men, and he's going to be mocked, and he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be pierced, and he's going to be crushed. And in so doing, he's going to bear and pay for the iniquities and sins of all of those who will look to him in faith. And when he did it, he would secure all of God's promises to do good for his people. We have a massive advantage over Isaiah. We have a massive advantage over these exiles. Christians don't wait in suspense for a Savior to come. He already has in the person of Jesus Christ. And because He has, because He has borne our sin and made you His own, He's removed every barrier of God's love and mercy flowing into our lives. Those who believe in Him, those who trust Him, those who wait upon Him can know, you can know, He will act in mercy for you. And so are you weary this morning, this afternoon? He will act in mercy for you. Wait for it. Look for it. Maybe deliverance. Maybe wisdom. Maybe quiet guidance. Maybe peace in a storm. Maybe strength for a battle. But He will act with exactly what you need. And so, because we have such a generously compassionate Father, such an all-sufficient Savior, such an ever-present Holy Spirit, we can stare down whatever threatens us today Monday morning, the rest of our lives, we can stare it down with glad expectations of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we read your word and, Lord, it just it entices us, it it awakens us from slumber. It, sometimes, Lord, it feels too good to be true. But Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to guarantee that it is true. You have given us Him, and in so doing, you've given us forgiveness, you've given us life, and you've given us a promise to be with us every day. You've given us a promise to give us your grace, your strength, that we might bring you glory in our lives and that we might be satisfied with nothing less than you. How we thank you. How we praise you. Father, I pray for Sovereign Grace Church, Pasadena. I, I pray that they would be a people who, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, would live with glad expectations of God. And they would mount up with wings like eagles. They would thrive under your care. They would be fruitful in your mission. 
that they would bring you much glory. Do that, Lord, I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.